It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jim Archeri today. And I'll give you a little bit of background. He was uh, born and raised in Pennington, New Jersey. His education is BA of History in Lebanon Valley College. His master's uh, in Biblical Misso Seminary and also his doctorate of ministry in Providence Seminary. Quite a background. He's been married to his wife, Vicki, for 38 years. They have three grown, two, three grown children, uh, Elisa, James, and Noel, Joel, and three grandchildren. His career is with the PCA Church Planter in Suffolk, Virginia, headmaster of the Stonebridge Church, Stonebridge School in Chesapeake, Virginia, administrator to the Sturt Event Construction, Newport News, Virginia, pastor of the Community Bible Fellowship Church in Red Hill, BFC Board of Church Extension, BFC Church Health Committee, and he's a board member of Missouri Seminary, and he's a musician. He likes to play music too. Uh, with a level, a professional level, uh, in bass guitar. And I think it's called the swing band. That's, yeah. And, uh, swing shift, sorry. Get it right, right? And, uh, it's on the internet. So if you want to listen to some music from him, there you go. And he enjoys trips with his wife. And Jim, would you please come and minister to us? Thank you and welcome. Good morning, Wallyford BFC. Good to see you all. Good to be here. I've, I've been here a couple of times before for different meetings, but never uh, in, the, in the morning service. Uh, thank you to the music team. Uh, uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Archeri. It's Italian. The CI makes a CH sound. And uh, that's like all famous Italian names, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Anthony T. Fauci. Okay, maybe we just... just well, anyway, it's, you know, the same pronunciation. And um, I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Thank you to Pastor Aaron and Mark and, and Tim and all the IT people, etc., for making this possible. Um, if you uh, should have gotten an outline for the sermon on your way in today, if not, they're still back there on the table. Uh, that's so you can get the most bang for your buck. Uh, if you ever been to a good restaurant where they give you too much, right, you take it you right in a box, right? So you may have to do that this morning. Uh, because I'm going to give you a lot. And uh, you can also get, if you like the slides, you can get a copy of those from, the, from anybody on the staff here. So don't be too worried. If you don't get it all, you can, you can savor the taste later. All right. So um, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at a passage there of Scripture. You may be familiar with it. Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Matthew, written specifically really to uh, Jewish readers of the time. And um, Jesus has been uh, uh, proclaiming the kingdom and uh, doing all kinds of things to draw attention to the gospel. And this is the end of chapter 9, kind of as a summary statement of what's been happening. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, which is the end of the chapter. And uh, how many of you use the ESV? Let me ask that question. That's what I'll be reading from this morning. And then how many of you use inferior versions? It's just... Uh, well, well, I'm going to point something out to you in just a second, all right? Okay, here we go. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Wow. 
When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I skipped a word there that's in the ESV. Anybody notice it? Earnestly. But it's not, somehow it doesn't come out in most of the other, uh, other versions of Scripture. But it's an important word there. And we're going to look at that in a second. See how Jesus wants, how much he wants us to be praying. All right, so let's go. We're going to try the clicker thing here. If it doesn't work, I'll just have to cue them, right? We were, we were trying it before. We'll see what happens. Nope, it's not working, guys. So go ahead to the next slide. Seen any of these lately? In regard to the kingdom of God, how long has this sign been up? 2,000 years, right? According to our passage, it's been up for 2,000 years. There's still a promise of a good crop? Okay, but a few to bring, bring it in, right? So that's why I'm here. But first things first, next slide. Here's a quote from Francis Bacon, 17th century mathematician. It is the nature of heavy, that is critical or important or significant or weighty, things to sink to the bottom of the stream of history where they cannot be seen while straw and stubble flow to the top. But on occasion, God gives someone a what long spoon to stir up the bottom. Now, I hope this message this morning is that long spoon. And I'm going to be here to, and to stir you up. Are you ready for that? I hope you can give your consent to that. If yes, you circle yes on your little outline there. See, this is an interactive sermon this morning. I'm going to have you writing and I'm going to have you reading. All right. Just to keep you from being too bored. All right. So circle yes. If you're going to give your consent to be stirred up with the long spoon of this message. All right. Next slide, please. And go ahead and click the two goals there that I have for this morning. If you don't mind. There we go. Here's our two goals for this message. Every, oh, you're supposed to read the yellow. Ready? Believer on, believers supporting. All right, that's our goals. Okay, and and let's um, let's see. the The thing is, how serious should we be about those kinds of goals? Well, let's go back to our word there that was missing from all the other versions, but it's in the ESV, and that's the word what? All right, go ahead to the next slide, and and you can. Uh, we're going to have three clicks here. All right, you ready? First click. Go ahead. This is from scripture. While he, meaning Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. What does that mean? Life is over, right? When he saw Jesus, he fell on his feet and him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the same word as in our passage, begged. As we pray, all right, yeah, sorry about that, my fault. Ready? As we pray, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your face. There are things we pray about night and day. Are they the serious things in life? Yeah. Next click. We, you, be reconciled to God. So this is the same word in our passage. So how intensely should we be praying for more laborers? You tell me. Very. That's the word on your sheet there. So fill in the word very there. Okay. 
The underlined, the, uh, well, you'll see words here are, are underlined, and they are the ones in, uh, that, that go onto your page. Okay, so we know how serious we're supposed to be, but why should we be so serious? Let's go to the next slide. And this is from Revelation, and we'll get a clue here maybe as to why. You read the yellow, okay, you ready? After this, this is the Apostle John. I looked, and behold, a great that no one could number from every, from all, and, and standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Go ahead, guys. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Now, I see some people here from Reading. I want you to say this in loud enough voice that the people out there in Reading can hear that. Because this is heaven's. What are they doing? They whispering. No, they're shouting. Can you do that? All right, let's try it. And, and crying out with a loud voice. So maybe that's why our Lord wants us to be so serious. He hears this shouting about him in the future. What do you think? Yeah, I think that may be why. All right. We need more laborers. We know why. Well, how do we get them? Go ahead to the next slide, fellas. Uh, you got to go where people are already working. So Jesus went to Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. That's where he went, right? All who were with, see, what happened was they had fished all night, caught nothing. Jesus says, throw your net over there, a miraculous catch of fish. And then it goes to, to a text which says, all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And you go ahead and click that, it should circle the word partners, yes. That's the word koinonia, which means common. It's also translated in 1 John as fellowship. See, we have fellowship with the Father with the common eternal life with God, right? And you can have a common business together, common fishing thing, and that's the same word. And go ahead and click, and this the next part says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Oh, you want to read the green too? That's fine with me. It's all right. <laughs> all right. So we have a, Jesus is saying, fellas, you have in common a fishing business. You follow me. We'll have in common a partnership of fishing for men or reaping the harvest. How many of you ever remember a TV show called Undercover Boss? Yeah, I'll never forget this one episode where this hotel CEO, this is the way it works. The boss of an organization goes undercover and disguises himself and goes to work in his business somewhere, usually at the lowest level to see what's going on. So this hotel chain uh, CEO goes to work at the front desk. He's all disguised at his one of his hotels. And what's going on is nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> uh, customers aren't being satisfied. Employees don't know what to do. So finally the guy says, hey, you know, doesn't the hotel chain offer training? Isn't there a training program? And they look at each other and they say, nope, never heard of it. And now he's really frustrated. You know why? He wrote the training program. <laughs> and nobody's following it. Well, friends, in our passage this morning, guess what we have from the boss, as it were? We have the training program for raising up more harvest laborers. Okay? And if you'll follow me and on your outline, then we're going we're gonna to try to make this happen all within two hours. Okay. All right, let's go to the next slide. And here's the training program. Go ahead and click through, fellas. Looking 
which is, uh, this is from our passage, right? Jesus said, said he saw the crowds looking, developing Jesus' redemptive perspective of people, and then feeling, which is growing into Jesus' maturity, said, I have compassion, and then acting, engaging with harvesting faith. And then he, sent, he told, gave them the challenge, and then he sent them out, all right? So let's get started on our training program, all right? Let's go to the next slide, and you go ahead and click that one time, and it should say this. The first part of looking is observation, which is being on site for needs in sight. So the next slide is, it's, they'll tell, we're just summarizing what Jesus saw. Go ahead and click through that. What, what did Jesus observe as he went through all these villages? These are people who harassed, which means mangled. That's to be filled in on your page. And people are helpless. That means to be thrown down. And they're in need of a shepherd. Now, I have on authority of a sheep farmer that the word helpless, they're thrown down. Basically means that when a sheep is on its back on all fours, it will resign itself to die right there. Because it cannot aright itself. It needs a shepherd to do it. So this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples as he's raising them up to be harvest laborers. Like who can be a missionary? Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. He's saying, fellas, you could be a missionary here, but you got to realize something here. These people need you because they cannot aright themselves. And, you know, you look at it, it says in our passage, he went through all the villages and every city. You know what it means? It means Jesus loved to be with people. Out of all the incidents in the Gospels, you have 121 interactions with Jesus with someone. 111 of them are out there. Only 10 are in church, so to speak, in the synagogue. 10 to 1 ratio. He loved to be with people because he knew what they needed. And they needed him. And they needed, we needed, he needed more laborers. And so he's modeling that for the disciples. Okay, now he's told them what he sees. What do you do about that? That's the next slide. And that's the, the interpretation. Go ahead to the next slide there, guys, and click that. Interpretation, there we go. Is Because there's a problem in Jesus' day about the way they were taught, the disciples, that is, to look at people. All right? Here's the, go ahead to the next slide. Now, I have a special camera that can go back in Bible times and take pictures of... I don't. Just kidding. Somebody took me seriously one time about that. All right. What do we have here? This is Luke 7. Jesus has been invited to eat at the home of a religious leader, a pastor, whatever you might say, of the time, a Pharisee. And Simon invited him, but when Jesus came in, Simon didn't greet him with any hospitality. A serious offense in those days. Why? Because Simon has been judging Jesus. He's already prejudged them before he came in, so no hospitality. And then when Jesus gets there, this woman at the bottom left of the picture there comes in. And now Simon says, oh, no, now we have a sinful woman in the house. And if Jesus really knew what kind of person this gal was, he would judge her, too, and dismiss her and condemn her. That was the culture of the day. Can you see Jesus's gesture? What do you think he's saying? Simon, do you see this woman? Notice the emphasis on his eyes. And this is amazing about our Savior. Even with his op, the people who opposed him, he's still trying to reach their hearts about a person in their sphere of life who has a need. Isn't that amazing? Okay. Well, again, we're in the training program here, so go ahead to the next slide, and we'll show how Jesus trains his disciples to reject the cultural, churchy way of looking at people Go ahead to the next slide, Phyllis. All right, this is in John 9. 
As he passed by, he noticed the emphasis on Jesus's eyes. He saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, see, they're ready. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Cultural is judge and condemn. Blame the victim, as we say today. Well, what's a harvest laborer's response to something like that? Next slide. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, what does it matter how he arrived at this terrible condition? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, fellas, like you're saying, look, here's what you see. You, you judge it culturally. I see a redemptive opportunity. He did this so often, he really bugged the church leaders of the day. Next slide. So much so that they went to the disciples and they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, you see, we don't do that. We avoid those people, right? We don't like to be with them. But when he heard it, he said, meaning Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go ahead to the next slide. And now he really insults them by saying this. This is to the religious leaders of the day. Go and learn what this means. Good, you're still with me. Yes. For I came not to call the righteous, righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's a quote from Hosea 6, the yellow. What's he doing by saying that? He's telling these guys, you know what? You know what God wants more than people to be really involved in churchy things? That's what he's saying. He says he wants God to, he wants you to learn how to show mercy to those hopeless, helpless, and harassed people. Maybe, uh, maybe today you think we need to learn something like this too? What do you think? Yeah. Well, there was a 27 year old Pentecostal preacher up from Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, who back in 1958, uh, opened up Look Magazine and read about teenage boys on trial for murder. Go ahead to the next slide. And as he's looking at this article about these seven boys who are accused of murder, he hears a voice that says, go and learn and go and help those boys in New York City. Oh yeah, Pentecostal 27-year-old preacher going from rural PA to the New York City. What can I do? Go and help those boys. Next slide. And he did. And who was that guy? That was David Wilkerson. Started Teen Challenge, which has had an amazing impact all over the world for, for helpless and harassed people. What, what can God do with ordinary people making simple efforts? He can do a lot. You know, I, I was looking at your confession and I would say part of it too was an aspirational thing. Lord, do this for us, right? Give us the chance, you know, make us this, make us that. Well, this, this is an example of following through on something like that. All right, so on your outline there, you'll see a little paragraph that sums up that, this first section, which says, regarding the harvest, why would Jesus desire us to have mercy more toward people than our dedication to church activities? Because in relating the gospel to harassed and helpless people, the kitchen table, the workplace, or a neighborhood may be more effective than the church building. Certainly was in the streets of New York, wasn't it? There were plenty of churches there. Not much was happening with them, with those boys, those kinds of situations. All right, that's our first milestone in the training program. We need to learn how to look at people like Jesus looks at them and not judge and condemn them, but say, what's the redemptive opportunity here, right? That's our first 
milestone. Second milestone is the feeling part, right? Then go ahead to the next slide, guys. All right. Growing into Jesus' emotional maturity of compassion. Okay, the next slide will go ahead and define compassion. In the Greek, it means guts. Sorry if it's a little crude, but that's what it, that's the word, right? Um, it's also translated liver, heart, and lungs in other places. And uh, let's look at Jesus' emotional life here, okay? A man who died, who had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And again, in that day, that means what? She's no hope. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And he had on her. So what's going on? What Jesus sees, he feels in his guts. Next slide. Again, we're going to look at the, our Lord's emotional life. When? Jesus saw her. Notice again the connection. Eyes saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping. He was in his spirit and... Next, next verse. And when he drew near and he over it. Actually, literally sobbing. Now, I usually like to wander around, but I guess Aaron is not an Italian and he can't, I can't do that. But, uh, but um, let me ask a question. What is God's goal for you and me as a believer? We know, you know, everybody loves Romans 8, 28. All circumstances work together for good to those who love God, etc. Verse 29 is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, so all these things that happen in our lives, are God's trying to conform us to the image of his son. Here's a question then. Who would be the most emotionally mature person in all of history? Sunday school answer. Yes, right. Wouldn't he be? What do you think? Now, let's connect the two ideas. Jesus, the most emotionally mature. God's working to make us like Christ. Does that mean he wants you and I to become emotionally mature? Wow, what a stunning thought. Think of all the junk that happens in the world because of emotional immaturity. Marriages, parenting, workplaces, not churches, right? Oh, just, but just think of all that happens that, and can continue for generations because of emotional immaturity. What a great thing to know as a believer that God has a goal to make me the most, like the most emotionally mature person who ever lived. Isn't that amazing? And why would he want to do that? It's so that we could become a harvest laborer, have the kind of compassion that he had. Let's go on to the, uh, let's take a look at this then. Next slide. When Jesus came, the scripture says, he showed us who God is, and he, he is described as coming in the fullness of what? How'd you know? Oh, it's up there. Yes, okay. Yes, the fullness of grace and truth. So let's, let's, let's say then, then, that to become emotionally mature is to learn how to offer the best possible combination of grace and truth. Are you ready? You with me on that? All right. Next slide. Here we go. We're, this is how we're going to look at the combination. Now I failed math, so I'm getting my revenge on you. All right. But what we're looking at then is the upper right is the best possible combination 
of grace and truth. The fo- you see, you get high on truth or low on truth, and you have highness on grace and lowness of grace, right? And Jesus being the fullness. And I have sonship there because he says, the Father loves the Son. I just think Jesus lived in his Father's love 24-7. And that's how he could have compassion. That's the fullness of grace and truth. Okay, so... What we're going to do then is we're going to look at the deviations from the norm and then ask, how do we get up to the upper right? Okay, that's where we're going to go. So what would you call, uh, let's go ahead to the next slide. What would you call somebody that's really high on truth and low on grace? Well, they have a superior attitude. There's some anger seems to be underneath all the time and they're ready to fight. You'd call them a husband, right? (laughs) I guess I can go home now, right? Okay, yeah. I'm talking about myself. But why does that happen, though? What creates a person who regularly lives in the upper left? Could be when they were young, somebody made them feel inferior and they said to themselves, nobody's going to make me feel that way when I get older. All right, next slide. What would you call somebody that, you know, is um, is always saying, well, whatever, okay, whatever. You know, they have this inferiority way of looking at life. They live with a little bit of fear and they just freeze up whenever there's any tension. Would you call that a wife? No, sorry, ladies, I don't mean that about Well, you know, maybe they, the wife has to go there because the husband's in the upper left, huh? What do you think? Just to balance out the home. This is pretty typical of alcoholics. I've had a pastor's wife tell me this is exactly how the home that she grew up in. She can never invite her friends over because you don't do anything to upset dad. So everybody freezes. All right, well, then the next slide would be the, upper, the lower left. Low truth, low grace, right? And that would be somebody who just thinks that life is, there's just futility here. And why? Because it could be a teenager who looks at dad's in the upper left, mom's in the lower right. Well, what's, where's God in all of this? Where's the emotional maturity in this home? It's an imbalanced home. But let's go back to what's the Lord trying to do with you and me? Move us to the upper right? Yes? Still with me? Okay. Okay. Well, let's take a look at some case studies of people with this idea. We're going to look at four, right? Again, these are on your outline. And, of course, you have the things to fill in on your outline there with the matrix. But let's go ahead and fill us the next slide. We're going to look at four case studies, Jonah, Peter, Gertie, and Florence. Because we're going to look at people that even in the Bible that needed to grow emotionally. All right, next slide. And click. There we go. What a wonderful looking, compassionate man, isn't that? That's Jonah. Okay. Now think about this. God told him the priest to the Ninevites. He went the other way. Why did he go the other way? Because he was afraid of the Ninevites? No. Chapter 4 tells us he hated the Ninevites. And he knew if he presented uh, basically the gospel in that day to the Ninevites, they'd repent, get right with God, and you can't do that with my enemies. Because he hated them. And, you know, God sent a plant to cover his head there. It's such you see that's in the picture there. And that then, you know, God has a little way of working with even Jonah's heart, even with a prophet, to move him to emotional maturity. Jonah, look at that city. 120,000 people don't know their left hand from their right hand. And his question to Jonah is, shouldn't I have what? Compassion. Nah, you shouldn't. And the kind of book ends that way. You don't know where Jonah winds up emotionally. Next, next slide, please. And we're going to look at another case study here. This is Peter and Paul in Antioch. And uh, Peter was having a great time there in Antioch uh, eating ham sandwiches with the Gentiles. 
non-kosher food. Well, that's fine until the men from James, that is in Jerusalem, show up in Antioch. And Peter says, uh-oh, the cool kids are here. <laughs> I got to look cool. Sorry, Gentiles. See you later. No more ham sandwiches. And Paul rebukes him. Now, I ask you, was anything wrong with Peter's theology? No. God himself had taught Peter Gentiles are clean and you can eat with them. That's why he was doing that. So why did Peter withdraw? It wasn't theological. It was what? You guessed it. Emotional immaturity. Yeah, even apostles need to learn things like that. So I guess we're not accepted. That is X, except the EX there. And see, Peter's problem is not, they talk about peer pressure. You know, anytime you share the gospel with somebody, that's peer pressure. Peter's problem isn't that with the men from Jerusalem, the James gang, as I call them. Peter's problem is peer dependency for the way he feels about himself. Does that make sense? Yeah. He takes his identity cues from the feedback he gets from his peers or the cool kids. But isn't it neat that he doesn't have to live there? That God wants to mature him to the fullness of grace and truth, just like he wants to do with us? so that we can be harvest laborers because right now he's a harvest withdrawer. <laughs> All right, next slide. Now, I used to do as a church planter when we had a small group of people, what you guys just did this morning. After the music, you greet, you stand up and greet somebody, right? You guys did that. Well, there was a gal in our church, a nice family, three teens. They were dedicated Christians, had served in Sunday school and stuff. But whenever I used to say time to greet somebody, guess what she did? She ran to the restroom. <laughs> Go ahead, next slide. That, that was the cue, man. Pastor Jim says, get up and greet. Oh, I'm feeling the restroom right now. After a while, she knows that's not right. That's, that's not going to help the church grow if I don't meet people and even, you know, get to know them. So she comes to me and she says, Pastor Jim, I need, I need some help with this. All right, so well, let's look at this. And the scripture gives us this idea that you and I operate like trees. Psalm 1, right? It all depends on what our roots are planted in and how we think about life every day, depending on our roots. That determines our fruits. So go ahead to the next slide. We discovered that what's underneath that avoidance mechanism, so to speak, is fear and anxiety. But those are just emotions God gives us. Emotions aren't sinful. They're just emotions. But they come from the way we think about things. So what's next is, thank you guys, unbelief and pride. That's why she's just... Too worried about what people would think of her if they greeted her, if she greeted them. Well, here's a problem, though. The Bible says 365 times, fear not. Well, what am I going to do about that? Here's how God changes us, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know this, but it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and the Intense of the heart. God changes us by getting down to the roots and changing the way we talk to ourselves about life and our motivations, our intentions. So I said to, and we called her shy Gertie. I said, God, how about this? Let's look for a promise because scripture says we have everything we need for life and godliness from his promises. Let's look for a promise that can help. And we did. And you're going to read the promise. Ready? Go ahead, fellas. Here it is. You read the yellow. Ready? Fear not, for be not dismayed, for I am your God. Strengthen you. Help you. Uphold you with my righteous 
All right, so I said, Gertie, let's try this. Next Sunday, when I say to greet, you get up, instead of running to the restroom, you get up and you extend your left hand out and you imagine the Lord coming alongside you with his righteous right hand, grabbing your hand, left hand and taking you to somebody you don't know. She did that. She did that again and again and again. So much so. I'll go ahead to the next slide. Um, but she had faith now in God's promises and faith in God's promises always should lead to some action. And she did that and so much so that, go ahead. Um, she was, she learned the, the fruit of the spirit. There's love and welcoming and openness to strangers. And the next, and then you see here that, uh, we had to give her a new nickname. <laughs> Hospitality Gertie, because she'd invite everybody over from church to her home. And man, that is a total swing, isn't it? From running to the restroom to opening the home to everybody. What can God do if we, as ordinary people, practice simple things? He can change us into the image of Christ. And he can make us effective as harvest labor. She became a harvest labor for the church, just doing those things. All right, so that's 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 another case study. We're going to go to one more case study here. Um, and this is a true story. What's this gal's name? You got it. All right. Florence Alshorn, in 1923, goes to Uganda. She's 30 years old, single gal. Because the London Missionary Society had a mission station there in Uganda. She gets there and she greets her supervisor. The supervisor says, oh, welcome, Florence. We're so glad you're here. You'll room with me. Here's my side of the room. Here's your side. On the supervisor's side is all the furniture. On Florence's side, there's nothing. She doesn't speak the language. She doesn't know anybody. What's she going to do? It's tough. This lady wouldn't, wouldn't speak to her. For weeks at a time, she was mean. She was a bitter, cynical, depressed older woman, the, the head of the mission there in Uganda. Go ahead to the next slide. So what did Florence do one day, not shortly after she's there? Now, you have to use your imagination because she didn't have jeans and, jeans and sneakers. But she, she goes out and she sits on the steps of the kitchen of the mission station, bawling her eyes out for how horrible this situation is. Now, she could have written to the mission back in London and say, you know how terrible the supervisor is, but they already knew. Why? Because seven gals had preceded Florence and seven had left. <laughs> so they knew all about this problem. What did Florence do? She sought the Lord. She could be victim eight, but she said, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord led her to read 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the love chapter, uh, every day for a year, meditate on it, memorize it. And friends, she she learned that her, she saw that her supervisor loved books. So one day she gave her a book, the supervisor reciprocated. And in nine years, if you'd walked into that mission station, you would have thought you walked into heaven on earth because of what Florence learned to do. That changed the whole place. And in fact, the kitchen maid, there was a kitchen maid there who saw Florence on the steps when she was crying her eyes out, she came, the kitchen maid came out and said, well, you missionaries have been here for 15 years and we have yet to see the Jesus you're talking about. Well, after nine years of what Florence was doing, the kitchen maid says, I see Jesus now. We call that sanctification evangelism, right? When God changes the Christian and that convinces the non-Christian he's alive. The London Missionary Society also noticed what happened. And so they said to Florence, go ahead to the next slide. They said, you got to come home. 
you got to come back to London and teach the new recruits what you learned down there so we don't lose any more harvest laborers like we had been. And what did she, what did she learn? And you're going to read the yellow. This is what she learned and this is what she taught. Mission is not just missions, but mission and missions is me learning to offer you. Jesus offers me. Is that, does that take emotional maturity? Would that mean the fullness of grace and truth? Yeah. And is that what the, where the Lord is working with all of us? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, and that, you see the book there, that's where it all comes from because they wrote up the story about her life. So far, we've looked, looked at looking, learning to see people redemptively. And then we talked about feeling and growing emotionally into the compassion of Jesus, his maturity. One more milestone on this training program to become a harvest laborer. And that is, go ahead to the next slide, guys. Engaging with harvesting faith. We're going to learn to believe God's promises and see him work with ordinary people doing simple things. Okay, some more case studies. Next slide. Yeah, and we're going to look at three things. Praying, giving, and going. All right, next slide. This is 1934 in a dairy farm in North Carolina outside of Charlotte. The, uh, some of the Christian men in that town would get together once a month and pray on a Saturday morning, I think it was, and pray that God would do something to reach Charlotte, North Carolina, 1934. One of them once said, maybe we should pray larger than that. Maybe we should pray that God would raise up somebody from Charlotte to preach the gospel to the whole world. Well, okay. <laughs> so they pray. What happens? Next slide. A young man named Billy Graham was the son of the farmer that was hosting the prayer meeting. Did God answer the prayer? What can God do when ordinary people do simple things? He really shows up. Yeah, and I put London on there because uh, London is where the whole world is these days. And that Billy Graham went there. All right, that's one case study. God answers it. If he's out, how, how serious are we supposed to be praying for laborers? Yeah. So don't you think if that's his will, he'll answer? Yeah. Next case study. Go ahead. Here's a high school in northern New Jersey, 1956. And there is, and I use this illustration because we have a lot of these in our, in the Bible fellowship denomination. It's an 80 year old widow who lives alone. And she lives across from this high school and she sees the kids going out every day, including the greasers. And, um, cause this is 1956. And so she's praying as she's looking, Lord, raise up someone, maybe a young man from that high school who will preach the gospel to the whole world. 80 year old widow living alone, praying earnestly. And what does God do? Go ahead to the next line. He actually saves one of those young men. In fact, she actually took, she, he, she felt led to go over and give that young man a 10 cent gospel of John. He read it. He came to Christ and he starts an organization a few years later called Operation Mobilization and has sent four ships all over the world. Go ahead and here's the statistics about it. Um, and you can click again just with all of it there. Uh, 1970 OM ships have visited 480 ports, 151 countries, 45 million visitors. It currently has 6,800 harvest laborers, usually single young people, representing more than a hundred nationalities. Think of that. Not just Americans. In 118 countries, seeking to see vibrant communities of Jesus followers among the least reach. You know, 80 year old widow 
Simple effort. And God showed up because she was praying earnestly. I'm going to ask the teenagers here. I'm going to lay down the challenge. I told you I would challenge you, right? Okay. Teenagers, who do you see at school? Do you see any kids that are, you know, harassed and helpless? How do you respond to them? Are you part of the James gang? Are you part of those that would seek to somehow turn them right side up by giving them Christ? Will you pray for them? All right, so that's, uh, you know, men who pray on a farm. That's an 80-year-old. Let's go to families now. Next slide. And here's a family. When they pray and they thank God for the food, you know, like many of us do, okay, they connect something to thanking God for food. Somebody had to harvest that agriculturally so they could have the food. So they pray every time they thank God for the food that the Lord would send forth more laborers into the harvest every time they thank God for food. Can you do that? Oh, nobody can do that? Okay, I didn't hear anything. So. Sure, we can all do that. And maybe we're starting to get the close by uh, praying earnestly by doing so. But see, here's the, there's the need that's still out there, right? There's still, a, we haven't finished the task. The harvest is still plentiful, but the labors are still few. All right, let's go a couple more case studies. Now we're, that's talking about praying. Let's go on to giving because those who are, or want to go have to be sent, right? Okay, next slide. Does this look like a $2 million living room? It is. John and Evangeline Krauss, turkey farmers, southeastern Minnesota, 1958. Children are grown. What can we do? How can we help missions? What can we do? Practically help missions. One Saturday a month, why don't we just invite people over from various churches that we know. They'll come over. We'll read a letter from a missionary. Maybe we can have a missionary visit and tell us what their needs are, their practical, physical needs, like bikes or Bibles or cars or books or whatever. And then we'll, the 30 of us that'll get together, we'll, uh, we'll pledge to give. Well, we can. They did that. They did it once a month on a Saturday afternoon for 30 years. And out of that one living room, $2 million dollars. What's in your wallet? Oh, I couldn't resist that. Just couldn't resist that. But in one sense, it doesn't matter what's in your wallet because here's the next slide here. And this is the promise that drove and propelled that, that time, those people time together. And you're going to read the yellow. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be To which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You read Psalm 67 this morning, down the music team did. God bless us, right? But why? So we can send people to the harvest. Gather your people among the nations. It's all right to ask God to bless you, but you better spend it on his, his intentions, right? Okay, so... Ordinary people, southeastern Minnesota, doing simple things, and God showed up. Next slide. All right, so um, we pray, we give, and we have to go, too. Who could be a missionary? Okay, this is what we're talking about. Next slide. This is, uh, let's go back to 1994, southeastern Virginia. Uh, yours truly is a pastor of a church there for about six, seven years. We, my wife and I moved to a new neighborhood. The neighbor comes over and he says, hey, Jim, you know, we're about the same age. Uh, uh, we're old rock and rollers, garage band rock and rollers. We hear you play bass. Would you want to join us? We play at a tobacco shed on 300 acres outside of town. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. 
Well, and they call a preacher down there. They say, preacher, now you got to be a big boy about this. You're not going to be with church people. <laughs> You're going to be with tax collectors and sinners. Now, he knew the lingo because his father-in-law was a pastor. They're going to be smoking. They're going to be drinking. They're going to be, you know, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to be a big boy. Friday nights, I go out 10 o'clock, play for two hours. Midnight, they break. And it's, hey, preacher, what does the Bible say about this? Why do Christians say that? How much sometimes a half hour I get peppered with questions? Man, I would, I'd go home smelling like a cigarette and a beer, but I'd be full of joy because I got to share with people who wouldn't never go near a church. You got to be with people, right? If you're going to win a harvest. And when they had a need, what did those people do? Who'd they call? Yeah, I did weddings for them. I did funerals. <laughs> I did marriage counseling. I, I couldn't believe it. I had asked my elders if I should do it, and they said, yeah. I was hoping they'd say no. But <laughs> Next slide. And you know what, gang? It's still happening. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about a failure. See the fellow singing? Uh, about a year ago at an open mic up uh, in our area, Mukunji. Um, this guy gets up to sing. And when he's getting up, he's kind of goofy and quirky and he has these strange comments. And I said to the gal next to me who was in my church and who invited me to this open mic to play bass, I said, man, I think, I think he's already drunk. It's about 5.30 at night. She goes, oh, oh, oh no, this is his first time out after stage three cancer treatments. Can I crawl under the table now? See, what did I do? I did a cultural thing there, didn't I? I judged, I condemned, I dismissed, no compassion. <laughs> ah, but I played bass for the guy because he said that'd be okay. And then he gives me a list of songs. He said, if you're going to be here in a couple of weeks, would you play these songs with me? <laughs> Isn't God gracious? The man I judged, and now I get to play for him. And now we're friends. Well, what can God do? Uh, next slide. So what season, and these are the last questions on your outline, okay? What season is it now? Do not say, do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Go ahead, click, fellas. Look, oh, you read the yellow. I tell you. And that the so is it harvest time now? Okay, next slide. So then really, there's only two choices. And harvesting in Jesus' day was life or death, wasn't it? He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Is it too harsh for me to say that if I'm not harvesting, I'm sleeping? I know, I... I I hope I'm keeping my promise that I told you I'd challenge you. All right, next slide. You ever seen these? We need another one. Next slide. But this one is different. Instead of WWJD, it's WCJ, which means what could Jesus do with ordinary people like me? Am I willing to be with people, to see them with this perspective of redemptive opportunity, not judging and condemning? Next slide. Yeah, we started with signs, we'll end with signs. 
This is real. I did not Photoshop this. But I want you, if you'll permit me, to ask you to put your name there in the circle. We all need to show up for work because the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Next slide. Well, thank you, gang. I appreciate you giving me a little bit extra time and let me be with you. You have follow-up questions on the back side of your outline. Also on the back are some resources if you'd like to learn more about some of these things that I've talked about today. And again, uh, thank you so much. And, and Sam, great job. The whole place looks fantastic in everything you've done here. And may I pray for you, gang? May I do that? Father, thank you for uh, letting us all be here together today and to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I just pray that that would be the case in everything that I have said. In Jesus' name, amen.